0: Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting-edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on mindfulness-based interventions for schools, cure-all or overhyped sham. Our featured speaker is Dr. Candace Burkhart. Candace is a special education and English learner coordinator at Indigo Education, where she supports special education programs in over 70 charter schools in Minnesota. Candace recently finished a pilot research program on mindfulness-based interventions within special education programs in Minnesota. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on December 4th, 2017.
1: All right, welcome everyone. So I first want to start out with a little story uh, with a very fun photo of one of my most memorable moments in teaching. So I have been a special education teacher for about 10 years, uh, and there, uh, it was a very exciting day in my life. If we could go to the next slide. <laughs> I will show just, oh, I got the clicker, that's right, thank you. That's right, I have it. So here is me on one of my very favorite days of being a special educator. Uh, if you notice, I'm wearing a bike helmet. Uh, That's because I had a student who was doing some bike skills in adaptive PE class and then decided just to like take off uh, In the middle of rural Wisconsin, so I threw on my bike helmet I got one of the we had like elementary school sized bikes. I didn't think to grab an adult one I don't know what I was thinking Uh, and then underneath the bike helmet I'm also wearing a dinosaur hat so I was hoping that would be my big motivator to get this student back into school uh, because this particular student really loved dinosaurs. So I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, I uh, find my student, we're on our way back to school and we get back to school and this student and I just have this conversation uh, about This is just a really scary place to be in this school building for the student. Um, They'd had a lot of childhood trauma and it was much easier just to kind of escape than to be in the school building. And I had just uh, started a doctoral program and was thinking about all of these social emotional skills that I had hoped for my special education students. And really, how can we help our students stay in the classroom? How can we reduce that anxiety, that depression, that stress that so many of them face day to day? And I myself was kind of going through my own mental health. Um, For those of you that have been in graduate school or have taught full time, uh, it can be a very stressful uh, situation. After one night with a panic attack at like 3 in the morning, sitting on my couch Googling how to prevent panic attacks, Uh, I don't know if anyone else has ever done that, Uh, I found mindfulness. And so I started practicing mindfulness my first year in my doctoral program and it really helped me as an individual. And so I was just really interested in how I can bring those skills into the classroom Does this actually help my students? Um, Is there evidence for that? And as a special education administrator, what does this actually look like to implement within a school setting? So today I'm really hoping to talk to you about three different things. So first, really establishing a baseline definition of what is mindfulness. And then second, how does mindfulness potentially help our students? And third, how can we be good consumers of mindfulness-based interventions? What are some things that we want to look for when choosing a program? Oops. All right, so let's first talk about what is mindfulness. So mindfulness is informed by a variety of disciplines, uh, contemplative sciences, medicine, psychology, and education as well. And uh, we have this gentleman named Jon Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of the father of secular mindfulness. For those of you that have studied mindfulness um, or been involved in mindfulness-based interventions, a lot of our school-based programs are modeled after the work that he has done. And his definition of mindfulness that's commonly used is that mindfulness is the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience, moment by moment. So when we break that down, when we think about this from a school's perspective or a researcher perspective, there's really three different um, ways that we think of mindfulness. So there's the first one is having a present moment focus. So present moment's focus is we're really starting to think about noticing what's happening. So I am noticing that, wow, I'm really hearing, that dish in the background, I'm noticing that I'm starting to think about that math class that I have coming up quite a bit for me. So, really, just starting to have that present moment, think about what we're noticing. And the second piece is we call it decentering. Um, and I like to think of decentering as just kind of taking a literal st- uh, or kind of figurative step back um, from our beliefs. and and really from any judgment that we might be attaching to those beliefs. We're just gonna notice that I'm thinking about that dish and I'm gonna try to let that go. And then the third piece of this uh, we call an approach orientation. So this is where we make a choice uh, based on those thoughts that are coming up for us rather than just acting impulsively, um, especially for our students who might have some emotional distress, where we're just gonna hit our friend, uh, really focusing then on making some active choices in this matter. So I am, uh, I wear kinda two hats, I'm both a uh, special education administrator and a researcher, and I promise that this is the only slide that I will have that looks like my researcher hat (laughs) tonight, but I have to include a little bit here. Uh, So this uh, slide is from uh, the American Mindfulness Research Association, and really just shows how much mindfulness has taken off in our society. Uh, and I don't know about all of you, but it seems for me like I cannot look at Ed Week or other um, publications, The Atlantic, without hearing about mindfulness. And so we know that that's just really taking off in our schools. We're hearing a lot about it as adults. And um, there were 667 publications in 2016 on mindfulness. So there's a lot of research that's going on about this. Um, And the research base for adults is quite strong. So as I mentioned, I started using it uh, when I first started my doctoral program. I've experienced a lot of benefits from it. There is uh, some really solid evidence that shows some medium effects for anxiety, depression, stress self-kindness, a really great host of benefits. But as an educator, I wanted to know, does this actually work in our schools? Um, Can this be effective for the students that I serve? So that brings us to the state of mindfulness research for youth (laughs) for children and adolescents Uh, so i think this picture kind of summarizes it well so we think of mindfulness as this beautiful kind of calm place zen like uh, but there's some cautions and warnings ahead so the first mindfulness study with youth um, really only occurred in 2002 so we have a pretty young research base um, that we're working with by most accounts Uh, Depending on how you measure empirical research and studies, there's about 40 to 60 studies out there um, that are high quality studies that have been done in school settings. So we don't have a lot yet of research that we're pulling from to really demonstrate effects uh, with mindfulness. Um, Of those research studies, about 60% have an active control group where students are receiving perhaps another social-emotional curriculum. Um, There's a researcher at the U of M that has used a relaxation curriculum as well as a mindfulness curriculum and actually found um, that that relaxation curriculum has similar uh, benefits of the mindfulness curriculum. So uh, we have some that have had those control groups. And then we have about um, 10% that have had, 10 to 30% that have really had no um, control group or no active control group. So uh, the state of these studies are not necessarily super high quality that we would want to see with our research. But they are getting better. So that's really positive. There is such a movement to look at mindfulness and explore this so that we are seeing more of a focus here. Um, Another caution that I would add is that uh, the majority of the research has been done in the middle school and high school settings, um, and very little of it has been done with students, um, minority students, or students from low socioeconomic status. So we also, as practitioners, as educators, we want to be thinking about that when we're implementing these things in our schools. So like I said and was mentioned in my biography, um, I did a pilot research program last year in three middle schools uh, using a mindfulness program called Learning to Breathe. Uh, And I'll start by just sharing a quote uh, from one of our participants. So I felt kind of weird about it at first, but then started to like it. I realized some things that were stressing me out were out of my control. I'm opening up more and like learning to love myself a little bit. In the end, I liked it. This is a really common sentiment uh, from a lot of youth that go through mindfulness-based programs. Uh, Ironically, when they look at programs, um, they sometimes ask kids to compare it to other sort of curriculum that they might hear about. So uh, one research study had the D.A.R.E. program as the uh, other control, the treatment control. And kids actually voted, they thought the D.A.R.E. program would be more effective than mindfulness. So that's, you know, kind of how low kids perceive mindfulness at first. <laughs> For those of us that have been through the D.A.R.E. program, I'm sure we kind of know <laughs> the effects of that. So, uh, but, but kids really like this. Um, the, the research that I did, of the participants were actually um, middle school boys. And again, wonderful things, 100% of them thought that we should continue to do mindfulness, really, really, really believed um, strongly in this. So even though the state of the science is a little bit low, we're hearing just wonderful, wonderful things from our students and our teachers about mindfulness. These are some of the potential benefits of mindfulness that we have seen so far in the research that's been conducted. So the majority of the research has really looked at stress, anxiety, and depression. And when we think about stress, um, the benefit really coming from reducing that kind of mental time travel. So um, for a lot of our students and for us, we might have ruminations about feelings or things coming up um, and and having mindfulness and having some of those skills can help reduce those ruminations. We're able to stay more again in that present moment, that present moment focus. Uh, And that also helps us to really increase our relaxation, our acceptance of that moment without having any judgment tied to what might be going on. Um, ironically, there's actually a research study that was done where they had students do just a single session of mindfulness um, compared to doing just some sort of general problem solving with a teacher. And that, mo- that single session of mindfulness uh, was more effective at reducing anxiety and depression for those students in that, in that study. So uh, kind of amazing effects there. There's also some evidence that mindfulness can reduce externalizing behaviors. So, externalizing behaviors are things that we kind of outwardly see. So, things like aggression, um, maybe one of those. There's a a great researcher for my special education friends in the house who's done some work with students with autism um, around externalizing behaviors and aggression uh, using a technique called meditation on the soles of the feet and has really seen some dramatic reductions um, in episodes of aggression from students. So uh, again, there's some really nice research that's out there as well. Self-kindness, um, again, is another big category. Uh, this is one that we really saw in the research that I did. Uh, the Students reporting just much higher levels of self-acceptance, um, self-compassion, there uh, were a few participants in the study who were involved in the baseball team at the middle, one of the middle schools that we were at. Uh, and they spread mindfulness to their entire baseball team. So they would lead um, their, their team in different uh, meditative uh, sessions and then really started to use it when they were out on the field. So one student said that whenever he would have a um, strikeout Before doing mindfulness-based interventions, he would just shut down. He would stop playing the rest of the game. He couldn't recover. Um, But after learning some techniques, he was really able to have that self-kindness and compassion uh, to be able to keep playing and moving on um, with that game. So that was a really big change for him. Uh, Empathy for others, again, is another uh, big area here. And I'm sure we can all agree that this is something that we really want in our students and in our society at this point, uh, is increasing that empathy. Uh, One of my favorite studies that's been done kind of from an adult standpoint that I'd really love to see replicated in a school is where they have participants do mindfulness uh, and then participants do like another, um, maybe like a relaxation component and then they create these conditions where they'll bring the people in that had done the mindfulness-based training, uh, and then they'll have you know, perhaps three seats in a lobby. Two will be taken. The mindfulness uh, person will come sit down, and then they'll have someone come in with that like, looks like they have a broken foot to see if someone will give up their chair for that person. Um, And interestingly, the people that have done mindfulness are two times as likely to give up their chair uh, so they can demonstrate some of those empathic qualities in something as simple as that. So kind of fascinating stuff. I'd love to see a similar sort of thing replicated in a school setting. And then next is executive function. So again, we see a host of benefits uh, from executive function. And for those of you that aren't um, familiar with that term, I really like to think of executive function as if we kind of have like a personal assistant that lives in our brain that can help us set goals, plan our day, break down tasks that we have to do And so uh, mindfulness is another good uh, tool that we've seen to increase that executive function in our students um, really by helping kind of train those those neural pathways and really strengthen those um, to be able to do some of those tasks. Attention as well, um, we've seen a lot of great research using mindfulness in, um, with our students with ADHD. So there's been a lot of really great clinical studies showing that mindfulness can be as effective as um, a medicine uh, treatment for ADHD. So again, stuff that we're still trying to implement in schools to make sure that those treatment effects continue, um, but some really great evidence that's there. And last um, is that blood pressure and heart rate. So there's, again, been some studies demonstrating that there's some physical benefits for our youth by doing mindfulness-based interventions. so how do we be good consumers of mindfulness-based programs we know that there is evidence out there it's still pretty limited but it's encouraging we're starting to see uh, more evidence be collected it's moving in the right direction Uh, but then how do we as practitioners as educators as parents choose programs that are really going to work for us. Uh, Because we know that there has been so much attention to mindfulness, uh, we want to make sure that we're we're being good stewards here, being good consumers. So these are just some examples of things that uh, are essential and flexible when looking at mindfulness based programs. So uh, we really want to make sure, again, that it's informed by a multiple uh, variety of disciplines, so contemplative science, Uh, psychology, education, medicine, uh, making sure that they're focusing on those components of mindfulness that I talked about earlier, so that present moment focus, decentering, approach orientation, uh, that they are talking about the types of benefits that we hope to see in our schools. Uh, So things like self-regulation, self-compassion, And that, um, really, when we're looking at a mindfulness-based curriculum, we want to see that it's more experiential in nature um, rather than something that's more typical of direct instruction sort of lecture uh, standpoint. So really providing students with exercises that approach it in that way, in an experiential way. And then some flexible components here as well. So um, making sure we are adapting that curriculum to fit the needs of our school setting. Uh, So for example, since I was researching in middle schools and in special education settings, we chose a mindfulness-based intervention that was much shorter than others. So it was just 20-minute sessions three times a week uh, to really make sure that we were aligning with the attention span of the students that we were working with uh, and, and really getting the best bang for our buck there. These are just some other tips around um, choosing a program and I really think that this is applicable not just for mindfulness, um, but as well for choosing a reading curriculum, a math curriculum, things that we want to consider as an educator. So the first is students and setting. So when looking at a program, does that practice or program actually address the skills that I'm interested in? Um, There's a variety of mindfulness programs out there. Again, making sure that that aligns with what I need. Looking a little bit at that research. So as I mentioned, there's um, definitely been a gap in mindfulness research for minority youth, for youth with low socioeconomic status. So considering, has the the researcher actually looked at these populations? Um, Have they included different subgroups, like um, English as a second language students or special education students? Uh, What are the demographics that they've worked with? And what were the conditions that they used this program in? So a lot of the mindfulness research has been done in more clinical settings, um, such as a therapist's office or um, actually even in a parent's home. So making sure, has this actually been implemented in a school setting? How do we know that this is going to work for a school? And then I also think resources are really important so a lot of times we kind of at least I kind of kid myself into thinking that oh This like forty thousand dollar curriculum is going to be awesome without really thinking through my school's um, Capability of being able to implement it. So does my school have the resources to do this? Uh, Are we going to need to hire? A mindfulness uh, trainer who could come in and deliver the lessons, or can we teach our staff to be able to do this? Um, What other kind of resources do we need? Do we need a different classroom to host this in? So so thinking through some of those variables um, upon implementing a program like this. And then also that evidence level. So as an educator, it's super hard to be reading research or having the time to do that in a capacity. So looking for other places that can already do some of this work for you um, to help you kind of guide and, and choose a program. So Mindful Schools has some great resources out there. Um, my website, I, I also send out um, information on different programs as well. So um, happy happy to help connect on that too. And then finally, these were just some considerations um, that have come out of looking at the research on implementation in school settings and also in my own uh, mindfulness research. Some best practices that we really want to keep in mind when we're implementing a program. And and in many ways, these are really just examples of of good teaching of things that we do no matter the content. So having a really clear and consistent procedure for teaching lessons. Um, In my study, our um, teachers used the same lesson plan set up and then varied their exercises during that, just to make it consistent for our students. We use some kind of visual um, and um, auditory symbols for students when we were transitioning to different sections, again, to just sort of self-cue that we're starting to do um, maybe a meditation or things like that. And then working on trust. So um, a lot of the students and focus groups talked about just how kind of scary it was in the beginning to practice mindfulness with their peers. And so having really a welcoming space, creating that trust between participants can go a long way in producing some really positive outcomes. And then creating that welcoming and private space. Um, So for example, one of the schools that we were in, we had to use the computer lab for our mindfulness um, intervention. Which was really disruptive and one of the things that the students um, really said was really tough for them because they would have peers uh, come in to print something in the lab or um, just kind of kids in and out, which really disrupted the flow. There's been some other researchers in Baltimore um, that have also seen this if they use spaces like uh, gyms, for example, that can can be kind of dirty and dusty, or there might be windows where other kids can peer in. Uh, So again, creating that really nice space and environment is one of the things that kids report um, often as as a, a really important consideration for them, which I know can be kind of tough sometimes in our schools. And then focusing on the treatment dose, so this is something um, in my own research that I'm really focusing a lot on right now. uh, When we look at programs for adults in mindfulness, these are often much longer programs than the ones that we're using for our students. Um, So it's kind of silly to me to think that a sixth grader with ASD, autism, is going to be able to pick this up faster than an adult, maybe, but we probably also want to have a little bit longer program um, that that can go on for that student to really acquire those skills. So I'm um, working a lot right now and thinking about how we can sort of set this up as a multi-tiered system of support with different levels of mindfulness intervention um, depending on that student's need. So something also to think about in your own schools, how we can really differentiate some of that instruction. So just to summarize, um, again, we know that there are some really wonderful things happening in our schools with mindfulness. We don't quite have the robust research base yet to show that that scientific evidence is, is really pointing uh, overwhelmingly positive in that direction, but it is coming along, and we are starting to see more of that. Um, one thing we should also mention is that there are have been some studies that are starting to show some potential negative effects that we also wanna keep an eye on. Um, So in my own study, our students uh, showed actually decreases in self-efficacy, so a belief that they could be in charge of their classwork, that they could be self-regulated in that capacity. Um, and we kind of think that that's because before they were rating themselves super high, they didn't know um, and have those tools to be able to accurately self-assess where they were. Um, but there, there is that potential. Uh, negative effect as well. There's some studies that have shown actually some increases in anxiety for males in particular. So we want to be careful around some of those things as well as, um, you know, children that have experienced trauma, um, potentially reactivating any bodily trauma um, through some of those things like body scans or or practices in mindfulness. So we want to just be careful, think about some of those potential harms, keep an eye on that. But we also know that there's just overwhelmingly positive support for mindfulness programs in our schools. All of the students that I have worked with, all of the teachers that I have worked with, continue to use mindfulness, continue to believe in it as an intervention. And so um, I firmly believe that we can't just kind of live in our head. We also have to think about um, all of those other things that we're seeing in our schools. And really it's up to people that are researching this to also start to consider all of those other avenues as well. So I'd like to just close uh, with a poem that really kind of spoke to me in the current state where we are um, in our society and really spoke again to the need to continue using mindfulness in our schools and increasing social emotional skills uh, just because of the power of, of, of our society and where we need to be. So this is a poem by Gary Lawless. When the animals come to us asking for our help, will we know what they are saying? When the plants speak to us in their delicate, beautiful language, will we be able to answer them? When the planet herself sings to us in our dreams, will we be able to wake ourselves and act? So thank you.
0: ED Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.